Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Comic Spotlight for the week of January 30th, 2024. thought it was an okay week. Uh, you know, kind of a smaller week in a lot of ways. Um, I, I'm not sure. Is this? I think this might be the fifth Tuesday of the month. That's typically what, what happens. You get a lot of annuals and specials and what have you. So, yeah, we, we have that this week. There's a couple of annuals. There's one of those DC cover issues. Uh, we have the anthology DC Power, uh, focusing on African-American uh, characters, persons of color characters um, for Black History Month, which is actually February, but it's, it's out here on you know last couple days of January. So, yeah, uh, we'll talk about them. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was an okay week. There was some – I, I feel like in a way this week just wasn't for me. Not that there was any technically bad comics, but – it just didn't it's really, really speak, speak to me. To me. Um, um, and it, it wasn't, wasn't, you know, one of those situations like it is sometimes where it's like, man, I feel like it's such a chore to read these books. Um, but nothing really got me excited, you know? Like I didn't read anything and go, oh my God, that was so good. Uh, I loved it kind of thing. So I don't know. How do you feel about the week, Rocky? Well, there's only one that stood out and that was the one I was looking forward to the most and that was Batman Offworld number three and uh, that it entertained me. So it uh, that put me through to the week. Uh, we got Beast World wrapping up. So I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, and uh, after a big revelation at the end of issue five. And, uh, you know, Alan Scott, the next issue of Alan Scott, I think was was interesting, uh, getting more of an origin of the Crimson Flame. And we get a Trinity special that we'll be talking about, which is a collection of the Wonder Woman backup of uh, young Trinity with the uh, John Kent and Damian Wayne. Uh, but beyond that, I thought uh, I thought it was, uh, yeah, well, I guess it was, you know, it was all right. But I, 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 I kind of share your sentiment that there was uh, maybe for some reason, maybe I was just expecting a little bit more overall. But uh, there were there were some good comics to talk about. And we'll get we'll get we'll get into it. Yeah, I yeah, feel I like, like, man, man I, I said this a lot, a lot lately. We're, we're, we're getting like, like a feels, feels like, like a regurgitation of, of stories or story ideas that we've that we've seen before, you know, Um so I don't know what the answer is. It's not like they're the same old writers. They're, you know, they're new writers. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of tough. But anyway, we'll kick it off with the aforementioned uh, Batman Offworld. This is issue number three, The Galaxy's Most Dangerous Alien, written by Jason Aaron, pencils by Doug Monkey, inks by Jaime Mendoza, colors by David Barron, uh, letters by Troy Petrie. So this has been just a, a heck of a wild ride since it started. Um and, you know, I said this when we were talking about the second issue, this is issue three, but I said this when we were talking about the second issue, how it, it felt a little bit to me, you know, Batman had escaped from the war storm slave ship or whatever you want to call it. And uh, he was kind of going out in the, in the galaxy to learn more skills that that sort of took me by surprise. I had thought that based on what we saw in the first issue, the, the entirety of the stories story uh was going to take place on that war stormer ship um and basically we were going to see batman you know build up enough skills to be able to beat the captain of the war stormer ship and then you know we'll go we'll go from there so instead the second issue was really focused on almost like a, a jailbreak type situation um where they escape from the ship at the end and now they're going to go out there and they're going to figure out um you know, how to, how to get Batman back home again, at least that's sort of what I expected it to be. Again, Jason Aaron surprises me. Um, we saw Batman land on this world and it was a world that had previously been 
kind of kind of in a similar situation to the ship, like a lot of slaves, like a mining corporation had land there. They had mined the planet for a lot of its resources. And unfortunately, uh, they, they kind of left the planet a, a mess, so to speak. Um, planet wasn't in good shape. Um, it, you know, just a, just a bad, a bad situation. Uh, and, and those survivors that were left were sort of left to fend for themselves on a, on a planet that was once, you know, a, a nice place to live and has now been kind of stripped as it were. And they're being hunted by these, these sort of mechanical type wolves that are living there. Um, so yeah, an interesting, uh, situation. So Batman, you know, crash lands on this planet. I, um, what's her, what's her name? I want to say I own, um, the, the Tamarian that, that Batman had, had teamed up with. She's out looking for Batman. Not sure where he crash landed during the, the rescue mission or the escape, uh, from the, from the ship. Um, and it seemed like, okay, well, Batman's there. Now he's got a new challenge. This guy's going to develop more skills. He's going to go take on these sort of cybernetic wolves that are, are you know, feeding on the, the lesser um, beings of this planet, I guess, for, you know, for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, instead, what happens is right from the start, um, Batman does save them, but we're, we're, we're told not, it's not shown to us. We're just told. So... I, I thought that was kind of interesting. It felt like a little bit of a, a missed opportunity. Like they could have talked about Batman. Um, they could have talked about him, you know, you know, fighting the wolf rather than just telling us how it all went down. But I guess the reason they didn't do that is they wanted to sort of focus on the other part of the story, I guess, which is Batman deciding, okay, well, I do need to go and, and, you know, take out this slaver who was, you know, the same kind of alien that defeated me in Gotham and what have you. So yeah, he goes back to the ship and that's, ex that's exactly what he does. He takes out the, the captain of the ship, um, you know, talks about how much he's learned while fighting these aliens. He's learned all of their, um, their vulnerabilities and what have you. And, and so now he's going to go and take them out. Uh, and so I, I really appreciated that but the story felt unfinished and, and Batman sort of expresses that as well. Right. Like he's like, why, you know, I came out here to learn how to defeat these types of aliens. So I can go back and defeat this alien of the same type that's in Gotham. Um, and so now I should be ready to go home. I've learned what I need to, to learn. Why, why does it feel unfinished? Well, cause Batman realizes there's still a sense of injustice out here, right? Like he's taken out a cog in the machine, but the, um, whatever the, the mining corporation that's enslaving these people, the mining corporation that was responsible for stripping that planet and leaving its indigenous people um, vulnerable like that, that corporation, that entity and the two uh, evil looking twins that we meet at the end, um, the black sun twins, uh, black sun mining company, I guess is what it's called. Uh, we, you know, it, it's basically foreshadowed that he's going to have to go and, and defeat them now. And they look, they look pretty scary. They look pretty gross. Uh, great art throughout by Doug Monkey. The colors by David Barron are, are really, really strong as well. So, yeah, I I mean, I was a big fan of this. Um, you know, I can nitpick it. Like I said, there's, there's things that I wish we had been shown and not just told to happen. But, you know, I guess, you know, space, space constraints are a thing. Uh, you know, they probably just don't have enough page 
uh, enough pages to show everything they wanted. But but this is really strong. The 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 wolf that Batman has a sort of a sidekick after he defeats the the alpha wolf uh, is is an interesting and fun character, a great visual. So I mean, this is the kind of thing where you read this comic and you go, man, that was a lot of fun. Really entertaining, great art. This is what comics should be. You know, I, I just got done talking about how redundant a lot of DC stories feel right now. This does not feel redundant. This does not feel like a story we've had before. I mean, it's Batman in, out in space, and I, I get it, right? Like, I'm being a little bit hypocritical. I give Zdarsky all kinds of crap for Batman jumping from the moon. It's probably more realistic to have Batman jump, you know, from the moon than to have him out doing what he's doing and in a Jason Aaron series, but you know, whatever, that's my prerogative to be a little bit hypocritical. But uh, anyway, what'd you think of this issue, Rocky? I I liked it. I, I, I'm, I think Jason Aaron did subvert my expectations a little bit, all in a good way. Uh, One of the characters that I really liked, I really liked the setup in the first issue. I, I, I think that, that, that character of Punchbot, that little, uh, the little robot that helped taught, helped to teach Batman how to fight all these different alien races and, tell Batman their weak spots in addition to Ione also Ione also helping him out uh, it's nice to see Batman return to that ship uh, fulfilling an obligation or a promise he made to himself to to, to defeat that that the, the captain of that ship that 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 evil captain that was have that had all the slaves and slave workers all in in essentially glorified employment slash slavery to the black sun mining company and batman going back to take to take out that that captain uh in just glorious fashion i owns on the planet and i love the opening scene where you know i owns actually expecting batman to be dead i mean she's actually apologizing to you know looking for you know do you, do you know where batman is you you guys probably ate him if you did uh, that's okay i can understand but she's not thinking batman's good to even have survived landing on the planet but not only did he land on the planet but he thrived and he he's he's now the new alpha male of this of this giant wolf that she sees on the hill and you could almost see that she's like you can almost see like she's dripping wet with uh, anticipation of the sex she anticipates to have with batman that she attempts to have later on i mean she's just blown away by his masculinity here this is alpha male batman in all his glory and uh, tr- you know true to form you know batman doesn't really appreciate how uh, you know the effect that he has on i own he doesn't really understand you know, understand his effect that he seems to have on women. It seems to surprise him at times, <laughs> but I, I just love the work here. And, uh, um, Doug Mankey, his art is just fantastic. Uh, Mendoza's inks uh, just complement his art so well. This is, uh, I, I love the artist. I, I love the action. And th- this, this does, uh, th- this is Batman keeping a promise to himself. I mean, he, he he could go back to Gotham. He's learned how to fight different alien races. He go back to Gotham, and Ion is is right. She's expecting him to leave after the, he defeats the captain on the ship. But no, he's he 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 waits and he says, "Okay, now tell me about this Black Sun Mining Company." Because Batman, when he sees something's wrong, it doesn't matter where the whether he's in Gotham City or any other major city on on Earth, uh, the fact is he knows that he can do something to stop the tyranny and the and the crime. Crime is a superstitious and cowardly lot, whether it's on Earth or in space. And Batman knows that, so he's going to take out the Black Sun Mining Company. And just how you get there and the progression, you, you uh, Jason Aaron has done such a good job elevating Batman to being a force in the in the galaxy. He's made a name for himself. He's just been in space 
I think in two to three weeks in story time, I think. And he's already made a name for himself in the galaxy, which is so cool because I remember Wonder Woman had her five issues uh, story in space and uh, Superman's had his made a name for himself in War World. And it's nice to see, you know, you don't often see Batman space stories, but we're getting that here and to, and to, you know, great effect. And again, three issues in, I like the pacing. I, I like the fact, I actually like the fact that we didn't need to necessarily see the scenes that maybe you were, you wanted to see. Jason Aaron is keeping the story fast paced because, you know, and it feels like it's fast paced, but I, I feel that there's enough going on that I, I, I can fill in the blanks with my own headcanon while still enjoy even cooler scenes. It's like Jason Aaron is giving us the best scenes that he has in his head. And he's, he's encouraging the reader for us to fill in the blanks. And he's not, you know, he's, this is a, this is not a decompressed tale. He's, this is a fast paced tale as you would expect Batman. Cause Batman is kicking ass, taking names. He wants to get the job done and get back to earth. But God damn, Batman can't stop being Batman just because he's in space. And he figures while he's there, God damn it, I'll take out the I'll take out the Black Sun Mining Company. But these Black Sun brothers, they seem to have some sort of whispering ability. Some they seem to be metahumans or have some kind of power. So they're going to be an additional. They're going to be a, a a wild card that Batman is not prepared for. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see what what these next three issues hold. But uh, I'm loving this. I would I wish I would love I, I wish this was a twelve issue series because I think it's only six. But no, I, I thought this was uh, definitely one of the candidates for pick of the week for me. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the relationship between Ion and Batman because yeah, she does. You know, she's out there. She's lonely. She does try to be vulnerable. He, you know, he he doesn't out and out reject her, but it's almost like he he's asexual, right? Like there, she's used to guys probably falling all over her, and he he kind of resists her advances. He's just so matter of fact. He's about the job. He's about the mission. And she feels rebuffed, you know, later she's like, oh, you want to talk about her feelings? And she gives him a, you know, a right hook. Um, she doesn't agree with what he's doing. Like you escaped the war stormership. Why are you going back? Uh, you know, and when he you know, infiltrates and he's supposed to be opening the hangar for her, she's like, okay, well, be sure and let me know if you're dead so I can turn the hell around, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. Cause you know, how would he, how would he be, able be able to let her know if he was, he was dead? dead. Uh, but yeah, yeah, just fantastic. That relationship. We'll see how that develops, if it develops anymore, with uh, Batman's next part of the mission to take out the uh, the Black Sun Twins. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Up next, we have a Power Girl Uncovered uh, title. It's it's basically a bunch of Power Girl covers, um, like we've seen in the past that DC does these from time to time. Uh, mostly variant covers, but there are some other covers. There aren't necessarily variants that are really well-known and, and popular covers that maybe people just don't have a chance to own, like uh, the Amanda Connor cover for Power Girl number one from back in the day. Um, so there's not really much to say about this. Yeah, there's Power the, uh, Joe Statton from way back in the day, early 80s, his first ever cover for, um, for Power Girl, um, which he had her first series. So, yeah, I mean, I'm probably never going to own the, uh, the Adam Hughes, you know, Class, I think it's JLA or JSA classified issue where she's flying on her back and it, you know, super famous pose or whatever. Uh, but, and, and, you know, yeah, that one right there, if you're watching on, on YouTube, very famous cover, very sought after. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm probably, I mean, I could, I could go out and buy it, but it's not a priority for me. So if you're, you know, like me and you like that cover and you know, you're never really going to go, go and own it. Here's your chance. Um, 
But at the same time, I sort of feel like, well, if you like these pictures of Power Girl, what's to stop you from just, you know, having a digital copy as like the wallpaper on your computer? Do you really want to go and buy this and then stick it in a box and then you don't see it anyway? So I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings on these uncovered uh, titles. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on it, Rocky? Yeah, I got, you know, I've, I've uh, people who've uh, listened to us before know that I, I go on a varying cover rant every now and then. I think it's a little bit uh, crazy that some of the, I, I get frustrated when the best covers are relegated to a ratio variant and you got to spend, you know, it's comic books are expensive enough. And, uh, to, to have to spend 25 to $50 to get these ratio variants with these great covers is really sad. That's why they're doing that. That's why they, they print this so that you can get the covers within the contents. But it just seems, frankly, if, if you're going to do that, then why don't make this issue should be a giveaway. You should, you should, I think they should give these issues away or they should be a dollar or $2. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be, uh, I mean, the entire uncovered should not be a four, a five ninety nine price tag, or or even four ninety nine. They should be. These are redundancies. These are, these have been published before. So give reward the reader, re, reward reader loyalty and speculator loyal, loyalty by making these uh, less expensive because they're all, it's all reprinted material. But they don't do that, and uh, that's just me ranting a little bit. But uh, again, who doesn't love a gorgeously drawn Power Girl, and particularly when 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 men and women draw power girl embracing her wonderful chest and showing it off because that's that's the best and my personal favorite is joe statton only because i, I do actually have that issue uh it, it's I, I i got the reading copy it's a reading copy and it, it's probably only like a 4.0 condition but i love it you know it's 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 nice to know that i bought it in, in a book i think when i first bought it it was it was it was 10 cents uh, back in the day and it was it was in terrible shape when i bought it and i still have it in the same shape that i bought it in so in my mind it's like a 9.8 but uh it's it's good Good memories and uh, Power Girl's a great character, and uh, it's good to see that DC's doing this to show some love to the character. And it's I'm 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 still pleased that she has her own ongoing title. So yeah, not bad. I will say as one thing that maybe you know she has her own series right now. I think it's it's selling okay. So I feel like DC's doing this at a time when they think, yeah she's a popular character, but a lot of that has to do with her her aesthetic, right? Her like her look. They've changed your look a little bit. They've tried to change it over the years. In fact, one of the variant covers in here, or uh, one of the covers, I don't even think it was a variant, World's Finest, back when World's Finest was set on Earth 2 with Power Girl and Huntress. And you can see when they try to change both of their costumes. Uh, and it's George Perez. And it's a great cover, but the costume, just it doesn't look like Power Girl. Uh, so one of the things that I'm, I'm struck by when you, you buy this, again, it, or you take a look at it or whatever, um, the fact that they're trying to make all these changes with Power Girl, but yet I look at these covers – and I remember the stories of when Power Girl was Power Girl, you know, when they, before these changes. I, I like that character. And so I think it, it's, it could be construed as calling sort of negative attention on the changes that they're making. You know what I'm saying? Like, why were they necessary? Whatever. Yeah, I agree. So, I, 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 I don't know. It's, 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 she's, a she's a problematic character. DC doesn't seem to know how to, how to use well, her correctly. It, it, there's uh, so. always that. There's always that interesting sort of disconnect, but it's commercial reality. Sexiness sells. So they want to yep. cater to the Empyrean fanboy like myself <laughs> and, and yourself, while at the same time they want to elevate the character and move the character forward. And that involves maybe a little bit more of a feminist approach to the character. I understand that. And so this is DC's way of maybe trying to 
cater to both worlds. I mean, it's, you know, it is. <laughs> it doesn't work. You got to yeah. pick, pick a direction. Pick a direction. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, we talked about it. We've talked about it a lot with the Power Girl series. It's, I think so many people confuse her with Supergirl. That's where the trouble, you know, really starts. In my mind, retire Supergirl for a while. Send Super, have Supergirl be the character that's in space. <clears throat> Leave Power Girl on Earth. But anyway, uh, let's move on. Up next, we have Batman and Robin 2024 Annual Number 1. Written by Joshua Williamson, Howard Porter's The Artist, Rain Barreto on color, Steve Wands on letters. Um, we've talked in the past about Howard Porter and how he was in some sort of accident and had to teach himself how to draw. And he's still an amazing artist. Um, but his style is completely different. You know, like if you take a look at what Howard Porter's art looked like back on that JLA, you know, that legendary JLA run by Grant Morrison, it looks nothing like what we're getting here. And, and even this, that's even to say that, uh, Porter's art has, has really evolved in the last couple of years, even more so, um, it's become less frenetic in a way, but just as sort of detailed and esoteric, like it used to be, you'd see him on flash and there would be, you know, a lot of lines, uh, a lot of, you know, sharp points and, and what have you. And a, and, a, and a lot of not necessarily detail because they were sort of extraneous lines just for the sake of that was the style that he he wanted to, to put forth. Um, and now when you look at this, you don't see as many sharp points. You see, you know, a lot more curves. The art looks uh, softer, but there's still all kinds of, you know, extraneous lines. Um, and, and a little bit of inconsistency. And again, it's just, it's just not for me. And, and when I really noticed it and, and had to go back and look at the art from a couple of the previous pages, and then I went back and looked at Howard Porter on Flash, and I went back and looked at Night Terrors. That was another um, series that he did recently. And you, yeah, you could definitely see an evolution of his art over time. I don't know if he's able to go faster with this because it's just a much looser style and that's never a style that I'm, I'm going, I'm really going to enjoy. But um, if you Rocky, if you go to the page where they're in the car or Bruce and Damien are in the car and they're driving to the campground, uh, you can really see what I mean when you look at, yeah, that page right there. So if you just look at the faces, like the first three panels, Damien's eyes are not, I mean, they're not even really rendered right? It's just like an empty spot with no pupil and it's just white. And then on the last one, all of a sudden he's got like this, these giant black outlines over his eye. Like, I just, I don't understand that, that choice. And when you look at Bruce's face, yeah, he's just got a couple of, of like black dashes for eyes. I, I just, I'm not sure what, what is trying to be done here. Uh, and then when you, you, you know, beyond the, the character's faces, when you just look like around the car, especially in the top panel, um, there's just all these lines. There's just all these lines and black splotches and what have you. Like, I don't, I don't know what that's trying to convey. Um, I, I guess a sense of foreboding or darkness, or you know, it is kind of a dark story. Um, but I, I, I don't know. This art, I, I'm having a hard time enjoying stories with Howard Porter art, because it's just not the type of art that I, that I like. Um, and I kind of chalked it up on night terrors as well. Night terrors wasn't a particularly strong story. It's horror, you know, not my favorite genre. And, and maybe that's what it is, but 
I think I would not that this story was original by Joshua Williamson at all. Um, and we'll get to that, but there was enough here in the, in the story. I think I would have enjoyed it had I enjoyed the art, but I didn't enjoy the art. Um, and then with the story being kind of derivative, this was just a, a, a miss for me. So just real quickly, the story itself, uh, Batman and Robin are uh, patrolling Gotham city, you know, as they, they often do. And they come across the uh, the twins, the same twins that we saw recently in um, in the pages of Nightwing, the Double Dare twins. Uh, and supposedly they were going to be, you know, going on vacation. That's what they had told Nightwing. They're going to be getting out of town. Apparently, that meant going to to Gotham to pull off a couple heists to then have money to go on vacation. But Batman and Robin foil that. But they hear, Batman hears it and he thinks, oh, that's that's a good idea. We should go on vacation. Uh, and so they, they go on vacation to this campground where a bunch of people have been reported missing. Um, it's not clear. It's sort of hinted at at the end that maybe this was Batman's plan all along because he knew about all these missing people. But what happens is when they get to the campground, a force field comes up around them. And this woman named Roulette is doing the, the big game hunting, right? Like, again, we've seen this story hundreds of times where people are paying huge amounts of money to hunt the world's most dangerous uh prey which is man himself um and of course batman and robin you know they save the day they get, roulette gets captured and, and what have you um and that, that's a story so kind of derivative not no, nothing original here where i really had a problem though is i don't care where i don't care if batman's going on his honeymoon i don't care if batman's going to a nudist colony bruce wayne never goes anywhere anywhere without his costume his utility belt his his stuff, right? And they go to this campground and then after they realize they're trapped, they take a, like inventory of what they have. They're like, Oh, we have this, we have that, whatever. You know, I said no work tools, uh, you know, but Damien snuck in some stuff and Bruce himself brought a few batterings. Yeah. That would never happen. That would never, ever, 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 ever happen. Batman is never going to go somewhere with that. How many times have we been told and shown in recent years that Bruce Wayne is the mask? And Batman is who he is. So you're telling me he's going to go somewhere without his Batman stuff? I'll never believe that. I'll never believe that in a million years. Never, ever. So that that's where it was really like, yeah, I'm not I'm not buying this. I'm not buying it. So between that and the art, this was, yeah, this was below average for me. I didn't really, I didn't really care for it. So I don't know. Maybe you enjoyed it more than I did, Rocky. What do you, what do you, what did you think? I did enjoy it more than you did. Uh I even enjoyed the art and I'll be blunt. I've never been a fan of Howard Porter, even back in his, it is prime before his accident. Um, but I think, I actually think that one of the reasons why I liked his art better in this issue than what it normally is, is because I'm normally, I'm used to seeing Howard Porter's art with very bright colors, with the colors, with great big bright colors. And yeah, I didn't true. like that. I didn't like that in his prime. And I'm an outlier in that regard. I admit but frankly, I like the darker tones here. I like the darker tones. I think for me, I just, I, I, uh, it's, it's the, it's the more subdued, like darker colors that I think complements Porter's particular style here. And, uh, you know, you pointed out, uh, in the car drive, some of your comments about the, I, I share, you know, you're right about your, your commentary about the, the shading in the eyes and what have you, but I didn't, it didn't bother me. It, it, it didn't bother me. Cause I, I think, 
at the very least, the, the coloring with the art was consistent throughout and I could still get into the story, which I quite loved. I, I didn't quite think it to the extent that you did, that Batman never goes unprepared. Part of me thought it was maybe kind of cool because it planted the seed that maybe Batman intentionally just, you know, did set this up to test Damien to give him to give them something to do father and son because he did say to Damien in this issue that by the way if you don't want to go to school anymore that's okay uh you know uh, because you know they're, they're getting closer they're bonding and and the fact that Batman just as crazy as it is the fact that Batman might actually set up a trip for him and his son where they're taking on roulette and blood sport and albeit he never knew that blood sport was going to be there. I thought, I thought that was just kind of cool. And maybe Batman didn't, but the fact that Batman might've planned it and Damien still managed, Damien just excelled and did, did an excellent job. Uh, there was an entire page where the reader is privy to exactly how they're limited in the tools and supplies they have. And I kind of like that because they're more challenged now because they don't have their costume. They don't have the usual supplies. And also I want to give a shout out to uh, Howard Porter. I don't know if it was his idea to design Roulette's costume, but Roulette is a common villain in Birds of Prey. She's usually very sexy. She, she has like exotic like tattoos and she usually wears a bright red dress looks gorgeous but now she's got sort of the way she's rendered here she's sort of like she's a cross between like a almost like a, a an evil laura croft with almost a cow cowboy western sort of look with that cool uh, sort of serpent green serpent tattoo on her right leg and her, her right thigh anyways i i really liked how roulette was uh, captured here and i like seeing blood sport how long ago when's the last time we saw blood sport probably in the pages of Suicide Squad somewhere. Um, in any event, I thought it was kind of cool to see him. And I, I just thought it was well done. I, I for This is annual week, basically. It's, the, I think, the fifth week in January, like you said. And I w this was actually entertaining to me. I like that G Williamson is doing a good job, I think, sort of giving us, you know, sort of ignoring... I'm kind of glad he ignored Gotham War there at the beginning. There were some inconsistent portrayals of Bruce, Bruce's relationship with Damien as opposed to the main title in Batman. But this Batman and Robin title, Williamson has stayed consistent with the assignment. Develop the relationship between Batman and Robin. That's the title. And that's what we're getting. And I was, I was entertained by this. So this is one of the, this is probably the second candidate for a pick of the week for me. So I enjoyed this. All right. All right. Fair enough. I'm glad one of us did. Uh, up next, we have the Trinity special. There's a few stories in here. Uh, some of them are reprints. Of, I, I actually, I think all but one are reprints of uh, of backups um, that we had in um, in the pages of Wonder Woman. So we have World's Finest Part One. Tom King's the writer. Belen Ortega's the artist. Alejandro Sanchez on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, again, it's. Uh, Damien and John Kent babysitting Lizzie, as they call her, uh, Wonder Woman's daughter. And then we have uh, another of those um, stories where Damien and uh, John have sort of taken over for their father. Their, their uh, fathers are their babysitting. Uh, and that was World's Finest Part 3, I guess. It, it, goes, it jumps from 1 to to 3. I'm not sure why it does that. Or maybe am I am – I, does it have all three? Am I missing one? No. The first story is part one of World's Finest. The second one is part three. Uh, again, same creative teams. And then we get a third story uh, 
and maybe it's just uh, oh no. So I'm sorry. It, we do have all three. I, I I didn't realize I scrolled past. Yeah. So we have the first one where they're babysitting her at Wayne Manor. Then we have one where they're babysitting her at the Fortress of Solitude. And then we have one that's set on Themyscira. So each of the uh, uh, characters, I guess, gets a chance to to have a story in in kind of their home home base, if you will, their home field advantage. Um, but again, they're all by the same creative team. We got Bellinet Ortega art, which is really great. Alejandro Sanchez on colors, Clayton Callen letters are all written by uh, Tom King. And then we have a story that's by the regular um, creative team of uh, of the Wonder Woman title. So you got Tom King writing, Daniel Semper's the artist, Tameo Mori on colors, Clayton Callen on letters. Uh, and as far as I know, this one's called Mothers and Daughters. This one is not a reprint. This is the first time this one's showing up here. And it's it flashes back and forth between um, Lizzie and Diana in sort of the Colosseum, if you will, or the arena on Themyscira. And then it flashes back to Hippolyta and Diana. And, and what they're doing in the story is when it's Hippolyta and Diana – Hippolyta's got a gun and Diana's got on the Wonder Woman bracers, bracelets. Um, and Hippolyta's supposed to fire the gun, right? And if Diana's truly worthy, she'll be able to have the speed and the strength to, you know, block the bullets with her bracers. Like we've seen Wonder Woman do, you know, tons of times. And then in the present day, you're seeing Diana as sort of the queen of the Amazons and she's holding the gun and it's Lizzie that she's supposed to be firing the gun at. And now, I mean, as a parent, let me just say, I, I, I fully understand what Hippolyta and Diana are going through here. Like, uh, not that I would ever want to fire a gun at my kid, but there are times when you, you know, you have to challenge your child and you worry about them failing. Right. And, and in this case, if Lizzie fails, if Diana fails, they, they could die. (laughs) They could die. They could be shot. So you kind of understand. So it's interesting. uh, Interesting story from Tom King here to compare, you know, Lizzie to a younger Diana to compare Diana to Hippolyta. And uh, I thought that was a really strong, really strong story. The Daniel Samper art, <coughs> gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous as it's been throughout his run. Uh, really impressed with the art that we got. And then the last story is Trinity, also that same creative team. And this is the s- story that showed up as a backup in Wonder Woman 800, um, where we first met Lizzie for the first time and um, decided she's kind of unlikable. Because she is, and nothing I've seen of her, even in these backups, uh, has made me change my mind about that. She definitely feels a little bit like a brat, uh, even when she's, you know, being watched by Damien and John. Um, so I'm supposed—I I suppose it's supposed to come off as sort of, you know, irascible or what have you. But it, it, she just comes across as a brat to me. Uh, not quite to the level of Damien for unlikability, but. Um, it's the unlikability is definitely there. So, uh, anyway, what were your thoughts on this, Rocky? I, again, I know we've read a lot of these stories previously. Yeah. Well, just to add, uh, th- th- there's only one new story, and that's the mothers and daughters one. And I, I don't know. I stand to be corrected on this, but maybe this is going to be in the backup of the next Wonder Woman issue, because all the backups were in the were the backups to the 
main series of Wonder Woman to begin with. So maybe this mothers and daughters will actually be in the next issue of Wonder Woman and the timing of this Trinity is just off. Uh, but in any event, it's, it's, uh, I like that. That was definitely, it was my favorite story actually that finally we get uh, one of the, one of the, my, uh, this is a, one of my gripes. It's not a, not a major deal, but you know, all these stories about a young, about a young Trinity, we're all with John Kent and all of them were with John Kent and Damian Wayne. And why? Um, well, I know why. And that's unfortunately the reason is I don't like the reason, but the, the reason is because Tom King wants to keep uh, the relationship between Diana and Trinity close to his chest. And so we finally get Wonder Woman having some interaction with her older daughter in Mothers and Daughters. Finally, that's kind of what I'm more interested in seeing. I'm more interested in that than trinity's relationship with john kent and damian wayne because they're 18 17 18 years older than she is so it's 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 just they're not the same age so it's not the same to me and again dc is sort of trying to cheat a bit to saying it it doesn't matter and we gotta it's it's really kind of wonky what they're doing with the age gaps but you know that's a uh, let me just slap myself across the face and say, okay, I'm just nitpicking because the stories are good. They're entertaining. Uh, young Trinity, young Trinity is kind of likable and cute with the John Kent and Damian Wayne in, in those first, uh, you know, two, three stories. And it, it's, it's pretty good. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, and it's still unfortunate. The very first time we meet Trinity is when she's older and deeply unlikable. And one of the misfires that Tom King has is I, I think he's done a good job of showing Trinity when she's younger, being cute and, rambunctious and a little bit of narcissism and overconfidence as a young di- as, a, as, as her mother and wanting to be like the best Wonder Woman and being inspired by her un- her older John Kent and Damian Wayne and, and teasing them as a young kid and those stories were cute and they were funny and they were good but then unfortunately she's 18 and then there's no evidence that Trinity has any requisite level of maturity in her very first appearance when she's when she shows up older um, I just and and, and, I, and suddenly she developed the language and 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 sort of she comes across as immature and and has the sort of the type of dialogue that I would not associate with her, uh, which I think is part of Tom King's struggles with Wonder Woman, in my view, is I don't like the voices given Diana. I don't like she she does sound like she has an accent of some kind, which I just don't agree with. But again, minor stuff. Yeah, we, we can still have some, you know, that was the first one out of the gate. Trinity is still a work in progress as a character. And all it takes is uh, all it takes is one story to change one's point of view because I'm already starting to like Trinity a little bit more. Uh, although I do hope that uh, <laughs> I, I hope that ironically enough that maybe Tom King just makes her a little bit more likable moving forward. If he's if he's writing an older Trinity, he's done a good job with a child, but to have a, an adult speak with almost that childlike level of immaturity uh it, it sort of barters on a sense of narcissism and it, and he's not done a great job of balancing that w- for the first appearance of trinity but maybe i nitpick but we shall see nah, i mean i think you're 100 percent on it right like you expect kids you know five six seven years old uh maybe seven's a little but definitely five and six to, to be narcissistic to be very self-centered you know like they have a very small world you know yeah um that, that's just you have to learn but yeah trinity yeah when we saw her show up the first time i figured she, she you know like somewhere between 16 and 20 um i don't expect her to act like that that's not okay to be act like that when you're that age it's just it's just not so yeah that's where the unlikability comes in so uh anyway let's move on uh, up next we have alan scott green lantern issue number four is from writer tim sheridan 
Cian Torme is the penciler. Jordi Terragana, Ralph Fernandez, and John Livesey handle the inks. We've got Matt Herms on colors and Lucas Catoni on letters. I wonder if Matt Herms ran out of red in this issue because there is uh, a lot of it. But uh, anyway, give us your thoughts on this issue, Rock. I well, this issue was uh, this issue actually gives put puts more meat on the skeleton of the origin of Alan Scott that we kind of guessed in the pre, in the issues leading up to this, namely that his arch nemesis, this Crimson Flame character, is actually his lover. His first is someone that is is this John Ladd that he was in love with, who he thought had died. And this the revelation here, it's actually we get we get uh, we get told from the perspective uh, of of the crimson flame from this red lantern himself, where he basically he gives his perspective, and it's actually quite interesting. It's I uh, I thought this was well done. Now it is uh, just by way of uh, quick background here. This has been a uh, a very it's I've been fascinated by the divisiveness of of some of the readership when it comes to this Alan Scott series. Some some readers viscerally dislike it. I actually think it's you and I both were, were entertained by it. And I don't think it I don't think it I've never I've never particularly cared about the intricate delicacy or nuance of every single detail of Alan Scott's origin as Green Lantern, but I, I think it, it works relatively well. I've been I've been enjoying it. It uh, it deals with the concepts of, of of death and resurrection and and life uh, as epitomized by the Crimson Flame and uh, the uh, of course the, the 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 Green Flame of life, which is Alan Scott, and the fact that you know that these two have a connection that they that they loved each other at one time. They loved each other at one time, but you know, uh, this John I think John Ladd is his name. He he was a Russian spy, and he he saw Alan Scott was his target. And, you know, he, he seduced them and they, and it, it ends up, it's quite obvious that they fell in love and that, that there's, you know, uh, this, you know, their, their love was sincere and, uh, you can tell that you can tell, but they're on different sides. They're on different sides. One was a rush. They're on different sides in a war, although they would. You know, Russia and, and the uh, Russia and the U.S. were on the same side in World War II, but then, of course, with the Cold War, that that soon changed post World War II, and and it you could really see the the uh, the, the dialogue here where uh, uh, the Red Lantern is describing uh, you know how he feels and in and, and and is sort of trying to be he's trying to make a mockery and he's trying to. He, he doesn't want to kill Alan Scott, but he wants to tell him that he's weak and that and he, he makes some interesting comments in particular that the reason why he feels he could easily defeat Alan Scott is because part of the power, one best way to access the power of the of the crimson flame or the, the red flame or the green flame is it's it's emotionally based. And, uh, you know, and it's it's similar in that respect that whether it's whether it's the power of whether it brings death or resurrection emotion is what powers it and so there's that it's not it's a different kind of emotional spectrum that exists in the green lanterns of, of, of oa and or the united the united planets i guess and so i th thought that was fascinating that there's still that emotional element uh that is the tether and, and lies at the foundation of, of the green lanterns power and the red lanterns power and i like how alan scott he wasn't a, a victim here he he actually utilizes um uh, 
Red Lantern's feelings for him in order to actually steal his lantern by the end of it. And and the dialogue I thought was very very well done. I think um, it's a uh, uh, I'm drawing a uh, blank here. Uh, sorry, Tim Sheridan. Yeah, Tim Sheridan. I thought I thought the dialogue worked fairly well here. I thought he did a really good job. I thought that it it I, I found it believable uh, in terms of him uh, the Red Lantern being a spy, and I I thought it I thought it worked very well. I think uh, Alan Scott. This has been an enjoyable series for me, and I still say again, given what his assignment was, uh, you know, again. He's given an, a, a very difficult task, but I think he's done a good job of it because this is one of those things where everyone, when people say, well, t if you're going to tell me, if you're going to introduce LGBTQ to a story, you know, tell me a good story. Don't, don't ram the LGBTQ down my throat. Well, this is one where it's not rammed down your throat, but it's such an integral part of the character. You can't avoid addressing it. And because you can't avoid it, I think Tim Sheridan in incorporating it into the origin, it just makes sense. It makes sense that Alan Scott would go through this. And he, when he, he introduces a love story on top of it, which I think has a narrative purpose. It, this isn't this isn't force feeding any sort of uh, this isn't uh, this isn't uh, woke for the sake of woke. This is good storytelling. It's entertaining. I think it's action packed. I think it's emotionally grounded. Both these characters love each other, but they're on different sides in a, in a, in a war. And they got to come to terms with each other and they both have very complicated histories. And I just thought it was, you know, very well done. And I'm, and I think it's, it, to me, it's growing the mythology of Alan, of the, of the power of the Green Lantern for Alan Scott's mythology, as opposed to the Oa of Earth One. And so this, this is, this is unique. This is, we're not dealing with the Green Lanterns of Oa or the United Planets. This is its own unique mythology of the Crimson Flame, the power of resurrection, of death, its own mythology. And I think it works very well. And it's just unfortunate that I think some people, uh, I'll be blunt, I think some people, are hiding behind a smoke screen that they just don't like the LGBTQism of it all, and they're missing out on a good story because of that, and they're assuming facts that are simply not in evidence because this is a good story. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you one hundred percent. That they're you know letting whatever ge the gender politics of it prevent themselves from from having a good story. Like if. If uh, the Red Lantern was female, right? Like I think everybody would be, you know, on board, singing the praises, whatever. You know, Alan Scott was heterosexual. They'd be like, "Oh, this is great," because you're right to your point, right? Uh, that this is adding to the mythos and the the origin of Alan Scott. We've said it. We've talked about it before. You know, one of the first Golden Age characters, super popular back in the day. But you go back and read those stories. There's not much character development. You know, there's not much drama. There's not much to Alan Scott, you know, he's just, you know, random straight white superhero dude who saves the day. Uh, that's just the way that the stories were back then, you know, in more innocent time, one could argue, um, or at least the things that weren't innocent were, you know, not so out in the open. Um, and, you know, people were more conservative. So th those are the stories that had to be told. Now we, we expect more sophistication from our stories. We expect more layers and, and that's what you're seeing here. And, you know, again, Rocky's right that when you t talk about the Red Lantern, you talk about this Johnny Lad character. I, I can't remember what his Russian uh, name was, but uh, I think Vlad 
because I remember him saying, uh, you know, when he that is Vlad, Vlad rhymes with Vlad. Um, but when you talk about, you know, what he did, right? Like he had a, a horrible upbringing or whatever, um, you know, grew up really poor. His dad was like a drunk and what have you. Um, and so, yeah, fought in World War II for, for Russia, then became a spy, did what he had to do. Uh, you know, again, some some hints of some homosexuality and what have you. He slept with the guy that, that basically was like the person that recruited for, you know, intelligence. Um and and went to America and became the spy to to get the Crimson Flame. Like it wasn't that he just came to spy and see what the army was up to. His specific mission was to get onto the boat where they were trying to capture the Crimson Crimson Flame. Um, they had um, read about it. it. It was part of Russian myth and what have you, which makes a lot of sense. You know, you think of Russia, you think red and, and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, when he, he did that, you know, he, he's got some uh, homosexual tendencies. It's not clear if he's bisexual or, or completely homosexual or what have you. Um, but either way, he's able to go in and, and meet Alan Scott and, you know, recognize in Alan himself, uh, you know, what he has. In, this Johnny Ladd character has himself like he recognizes some, somebody else who's attracted to somebody of the same sex to the point where he even says, yeah, I. I'm not an engineer, but you were so blinded and, and dazzled from the second I walked in that, you know, I could have you do basically whatever I wanted you to do. You didn't realize I, I, I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, but what's interesting is he, he clearly is somebody who wanted to escape the situation he was in, the poverty he was in and what have you. Th there does seem to be some loyalty to his, his country, but it's more, I think, a, a situation where, yeah, he wanted to better his situation you know yes there's as i said some allegiance to country but when he shows up later and he's relaying this story to uh, alan scott when he's telling him hey here here's the actual truth you didn't realize i was pulling the wool over your eyes to the extent i was you know rocky mentioned it the language and and the body language that c and torme gives us the 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 choice of vocabulary that red lantern is using um you can see that that what he's saying sometimes doesn't match what he's feeling. You know, he's like, it was all an act. I was just, uh, you know, pretending to love you so I could manipulate you and capture the crimson flame and, and what have you. Um, there were there are some lingering feelings, right? Uh, they were really close for, you know, a long time, close in a way that wasn't even, you know, allowed when you're in the army. You know, I mean, that that's the case in the army, Um even now, even for uh, opposite sex relationships, you can't be in the same unit and be in a relationship with somebody. Um, that's just the way that it goes. It's against regulations. Um, but anyway, uh, that's really interesting. And it's adding that, that those layers to, um, to Green Lantern. It's adding to his origin because here's the thing. We're, we're being told that this Red Lantern character is going to basically be a, a nemesis. And this, the, keep in mind, the story takes place in the past, right? So there's a lot of Red Lantern stories that people, other people could come and tell um, about these two. And, and what an interesting dynamic, right? Like before they ever had their powers, they were lovers and really close, even though one was telling the truth about who they were and one was hiding who they were. And then they get the powers and now they're against each other. And you sort of see it at the end, like how much Alan is, is hurt by this um, because he actually 
manages to kind of escape the little red energy bubble that the red lantern has around him uh, and grabs he, and he's out. And the reason he loses the battle is his ring runs out of charge. Alan Scott's ring runs out of charge. And when he manages to escape the bubble to take uh, Johnny, um, Johnny lad by surprise, he grabs the red lantern and red lantern says, you're not going to be able to charge your ring off that, but he does. But Alan Scott does on that final page. Um, and we even get a tease for the next issue seeing the rage of Green Lantern. So e- even though these are magically based, uh, you know, th- these sort of uh, powers that they have and not like uh, the modern Green Lanterns where it's, you know, more emotion. I do find it interesting here, you know, red is anger. It is rage, right? When we talk about modern Green Lantern emotional spectrum. Uh, so it is interesting, right? Like you think, well, maybe under normal normal circumstances, Alan Scott wouldn't have been able to charge but he's so hurt. He's so mad, right? Like he truly loved Johnny Ladd and come to find out all that was based on a lie. This guy was manipulating him. Um, so again, I just think that's such an interesting dynamic because this is the, you know, the first reaction of Alan Scott to, to react like this when he, he discovers this. But again, there are years of stories that can go back and be told of Alan Scott and the Red Lantern going up against each other. At some point, do you think it, it flips, you know, and, and uh, Alan Scott is, is kind of like Johnny where he's got those conflicting feelings, you know, it's not so different than what Batman and Catwoman have, right? But before the Tom King stuff, when supposedly, you know, now they're like soulmates or whatever crap is going on. But, but back in the day when they, they know they shouldn't be attracted to each other, uh, but they, they can't help it. Uh, and especially when, uh, as I said, they have the history of the relationship before either of them had powers. It's just a, it's just a really interesting dynamic. I can't wait to see what happens next. Um, I had a feeling that I would like this just based on the fact I'm a huge Alan Scott fan. And when I talked to Tim, I talked to Tim Sheridan a couple times after this was announced uh, about what he was going to do and what have you. Um, but this is exceeding like, like, again, I thought I'd like it. This is I shouldn't even say exceeding any expectations I have. It's completely blown any expectations I had out of the water. Like this is just so good. And the art's fantastic. The color work, like this is just a really well put together comic, fantastic storytelling, just off the charts. Great. Yeah. I just, I feel compelled to add, add to some of your comments in particular. There's a scene here that I think just, just was so well done. There's a there's a scene where uh, you know uh, the Red Lantern is done talking and uh, and Green, and Alan Scott says to him, "Does she know that you're a?" And he and and Red Lantern screams, "A what?" And he's thinking like, "Does he know that you're a homosexual? Does she know that you're a homosexual?" And and Alan Scott says, "No, a spy." And but you could see it was so brilliantly done because it shows that the Red Lantern is struggling with it himself, that both Alan Scott, both these lanterns are struggling with their sexuality. I mean, one's in Russia, which represses, obviously, we know the, the laws against homosexuality there. Alan Scott, 1940s America, not a great place if you if you uh, want same sex relationships. It's it's so well done. And what, what I what I find particularly interesting is that, you know, the Red Lantern here, Vlad or Johnny Ladd was 
sort of bragging to to Alan Scott that you've repressed all your emotions. You got to be more open. That's how come I was able to defeat you because I'm more open and maybe implying that he accepts who he really is. But that's not entire. There's cracks in the armor of Vlad here. He he also struggles with his sexuality, and while he might be all for Mother Russia, the fact remains is that Mother Russia hates who he is in terms of his sexuality, and that 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 cannot be ignored. And we as readers know that that's underscoring these two characters. Both these characters are you could think of as heroes in their own country, and yet in many ways are ostracized by the laws of their own country. They have a lot in common here, and their former lovers and. It's. I think it's so well done, and the fact that their the fact that their emotions and how their emotional health is directly connected to the degree that they can manifest the power that they have is very interesting because they're both in many ways accustomed to repressing their emotions where their sexuality is concerned. And let's face it, sexuality is a huge part of who we are. And again, I, I cannot. I, I'm absolutely compelled to give compliments to Tim Sheridan here because he took the assignment. He didn't back down from it. He promoted it. And, you know, if you don't like the story, you don't like the story. But don't tell me it's not a good one. This is an exceptionally well done story. He, and he understands these characters. He understands the mythology of Green Lantern. And because it's very easy to see if you read the original Green Lantern mythology, it's easy to twist it and tweak it to fit what the story that Tim Sheridan is saying. And so, uh, you know, again, I, I encourage any anyone uh, who was, uh, you know, maybe not afraid of, of the LGBTQism of the story to pick this up because this is definitely uh, de definitely this is uh, elevating the character of Alan Scott. He's more interesting now than he's ever been, in my opinion. Yeah, and this, this Red Lantern is way more interesting. I mean, they could have gone quite two dimensional with him because, again, like you said, the the, the con you know the conflict that he feels. Oh, I have a wife. Oh, does she know you're a spy? Well, then why are you? You know, in that page you're referencing, that, that's when Alan sort of flips, you know, flips the the table, if you will, because they're both they're leaning back to back with that you know energy bubble between them, and you you sort of feel the the closeness. There's and and they're feeling it too, right? Uh, at least that's what Alan wants the Red Lantern to think, right? Because just like uh, Johnny Ladd or Vlad was doing and manipulating uh, Alan Scott back then. Now Alan's learned the lesson, right? And that's how he gets the Red Lantern close enough. Uh, you know, they're like reaching out to touch hands, like a little Star, Star Trek uh, moment. You know, you you are and will always be my friend. Uh, and Alan punches him, and that's how he's able to get the uh, the, the Lantern. It, again, it's just, it's, it's fantastic. It's such a great story. Highly recommended. Uh, okay, up next we have another annual... It's Batman World's uh, Batman Superman World's Finest 2024 Annual Number One. There's a few stories in here. We have a story of um, Fifth Dimensional Imps. It's written by Mark Wade and Cullen Bunn. The art is by Edwin Galman. Lee Luffridge on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, and then bear with me because I got to scroll through. There's like three or four stories in this issue. Um, the next one is a. Um, a Metamorpho Story, The Ties That Bind. It's written by Dennis Culver. It's drawn by Travis Mercer. Colors by Andrew Dollhouse. Letters by Steve Wands. And then the next story is a story about uh, Queen Bee, uh, or Bumblebee, sorry, not Queen Bee, Bumble, uh, Bumblebee from the Titans. Stephanie Williams is the writer. Uh, Rosie Campy is the artist. Jody Blair on colors. Steve Wands on letters. And then the last story that we get 
if it will scroll down for me, but it won't. Uh, it's a challenges of the unknown story. Uh, and it's written by uh, Christopher Cantwell. The art is by, sorry, I'm just getting to the credits. Art is by Jorge Fornes, Lee Luffer, John Colors, and Steve Wands on, on letters. So um, the, the imp story, I, I honestly could have done without. I'm not a big fan. Like, uh, sort of similar to what we've talked a lot uh, about recently in terms of like Green Lantern family or Flash family or Superman family. What What's so interesting about Mixius Pitalik is how powerful he is, but he's singular. When you start saying, okay, well, there's a, there's Batmite, then there's uh, Wonder Mite for Wonder Woman, and there's Green Mite for Green Arrow, and and Green Lantern and their Flash might like it stops being so special and so fun and unique if they if they all have them and so yeah I just thought that that was just kind of meh it wasn't wasn't the best uh, the Metamorpho story I really really liked uh, which makes sense you know Dennis Culver we were both big fans of his uh, his Doom Patrol run and although Metamorpho's never been a member of the Doom Patrol he is that sort of weird character who's not truly a superhero more of an adventurer type uh and so i thought that one was fantastic i really enjoyed the art as well the bumblebee story was just okay um just kind of a paint by the numbers didn't really stand out to me not really memorable and then the uh the challenges of the of the unknown story challenges of the unknown i enjoyed that one i thought the art by jorge fornis was really really good but you know i'm a big fan of jorge so i'm not a surprise um but what i will say about that uh challenges of the unknown it felt like the first the first chapter, like a little, not not even necessarily the first chapter, but maybe like a tease, or maybe like a prologue. Like Christopher Cantwell's got a, a Challenges of the Unknown, like six issue miniseries coming, and this is like a little tease to get you, you know, excited for that. Uh, I, again, I, I don't know if there's a Christopher Cantwell Challenges of the Unknown story uh, coming, but I would definitely be on board for it because this is the this is the classic Challenges of the Unknown that actually act like the challenges of the unknown that I can recognize as the challenges of the unknown, as opposed to whatever that was that we got in the um, second issue of the outsiders. Yeah. The second issue of the outsiders where it was like, they were the way they acted, the way they talked, the way they looked, they were unrecognizable as the challenges of the unknown. I was like, I don't know who these people are or why, why they're acting the way they are. This is the true challengers of the unknown to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, I hope we get we get more of that. But but overall, as an issue, I'm a, I'm a little disappointed, right? Like I, again, if I if I had spent money on this, I'd be really disappointed. Uh, but because it just doesn't. Again, there's nothing to get me like really excited. Like you know, we look at what was done in Batman Offworld. Look at what was done in uh, Alan Scott Green Lantern this week. Those are those are fantastic stories. Um, that, that, that feel fresh and original and exciting and, and it has us curious what's going to come next. None of these, with, with the exception of the challenges I've known, uh, but again, it would be kind of a, a nostalgic thing, like revisiting the classic challengers. It you know, might not necessarily break new ground or whatever, but n none of the rest of these, like if there was another chapter of, of any of this, I could not read it and be perfectly fine. You know what I mean? Like it just, it was, it was just underwhelming. It was just underwhelming. So uh, I don't know. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I generally agree with you, uh, although I will say that the one saving grace that maybe these stories have is that I have more faith in Mark Wade that something is going to be built from these stories because his world's finest stories generally they're 
there's usually a reason for all of it and usually it builds on something. And so uh, one thing I like about Metamorpho, I like the Indiana Jones element of Metamorpho. Uh, it focuses on his relationship with his father, who he discovers in he discovers in this cave or he's looking for this this hammer, this ancient mythological hammer. Is, and his father is sort of like, his father is sort of a misguided Indiana Jones. Uh, but it, it, it's interesting that Metamorpho sort of lets his father get away. He doesn't even... He doesn't even tell Stag because Metamorpho's got Metamorpho, the love of his life. The, his father-in-law is Stag, and he, he who runs Stag Industries, and he doesn't he he hates Stag. He doesn't like his father-in-law, but you know they he works for his father-in-law, but he doesn't even bother telling his father-in-law that his own father was in the cave and and ended up with this is going to end up with this hammer, this mythological hammer, and that's it's sort of. It's sort of that's it. That's the story. So it's our Mark Waid is building tension for the character by by double down on doubling down on the idea that that Metamorpho has a dysfunctional relationship with his father-in-law uh, and his own father, <laughs> and uh, he he loves his uh, girlfriend, but uh, his father and father-in-law are complete complete dysfunction to say the least. So I thought that was interesting. That might bear fruit in future stories. Mixiaz um, Patelic, the fifth dimensional imp. You know, I kept thinking, watching this, I remember the Bizarro story in Action Comics by Jason Aaron when he said Bizarro when he when he gained all his magical powers. One of the things that he took is that he 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 ripped he ripped out the tongue of a fifth dimensional imp. And I I, I kept waiting to I, I kept wondering which one of these imps did uh, Bizarro rip the tongue out of because I figured one of these you know I was kind of hoping maybe it was Flash because I found him annoying. But in any event. Uh, um, I, I don't I sort of uh, I, I think it's it is kind of silly, but Mark Wade it c can get away with that here. I, I'm not really sure. There's a hint at a larger villain here. Who's the larger villain that's that's wreaking havoc on the fifth dimensional world? And these all these imps are presumably escaping into Earth one. Earth designate zero, and then if they're going to be followed by this fifth dimensional villain, who is this villain going to be? So it's almost guaranteed that that's going to lead. Well, in fact, it does. It even says it says to be continued in uh, super, uh, Batman Superman World's Finest number twenty five. So uh, we're going to get more stories there. Uh, the challenges of the unknown story I thought was interesting uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I got the strong sense that. Uh, clear, clearly, this is this is leading towards something, but what? Because not not a heck of a lot happens. It just there's there's a multi dimensional rip in space time, and the challenges of the known are, the, are in the middle of it. And there's an explosion, and they all think that each other has died, but they haven't. They've survived on to face future challenges. Well, what exactly happened? It makes me wonder if this explosion, this rip in time is related to what's going to be happening in DC's big summer event, uh, which the rumored DC ultimate universe or this ultimate, whatever, could this be, could this be the first hint of what DC summer events going to be? What's happening with challenges of the unknown? I don't know because really nothing happens. If you read it, there's a bunch of goggly group talk about dimensional rifts and, you know, these, these characters, but, and it's beautifully drawn, but what exactly is going on? There's just an explosion in space time. Somebody disappears and then it ends that that's really it. And there's, yeah, that's it. So it's, it's kind of a mystery. So, but that's challenges of the unknown, but leave it to Mark Wade. You know, what challenges of the unknown. If there's going to be a future multidimensional event in this summer for DC, 
I wouldn't surprise me if it involved challenges of the unknown. Uh, and as for the Bumblebee story, I thought it was cute. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Iron Maiden over at Marvel there. Uh, nice character. Uh, she's obviously Iron very intelligent. What's that? You said Iron Maiden. I think you meant Iron Heart. Iron Heart. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Riri Williams. Yeah. Riri Williams. Yeah. So, and that, that's fine. I, I don't, I don't mind it. She's actually seems to be a young, intelligent, uh, young, young woman. And she's, uh, you know, she helps people. And, you know, I guess we're going to get more of that character moving forward. It, it's one of the more undeveloped characters. It doesn't have a lot of history in, in the DC universe. And so Mark Wade focusing on her, I think makes a lot of sense. So overall, not bad, but not a, not a crucial issue, not a, not a must collect annual by any stretch but speculator alert i still my guess is that challengers of the unknown story is hinting at something bigger yeah interesting interesting uh to hear you talk about it yeah bumblebee i think like you're right not not really developed has shown up more and known more for uh dc superhero girls than than in the comics but before you even mention this you know rumor that's going around about dc having a an ultimate universe like marvel did back starting in 2000 um, you said something before that you said, you know, I trust Mark Wade. He always has a plan. And that got me thinking exactly what you said about the ultimate universe. Right. And the reason that I thought of it is because it, for those of you that don't know, Mark Wade is leaving Shazam. Uh, and you know, the speculation is it's because he's heavily involved in this ultimate line that DC is going to do. Um, and so, yeah, nothing really happened. Nobody's really going to care about this issue, except what if this is the first inklings of how that universe comes to be, like you mentioned it, right? So these stories seemingly on the surface aren't that related, right? Like I kind of thought as I'm reading them, I'm like, well, other than the challenges of the unknown, which they had, they did actually show up in a previous issue, but we know Metamorpho was was heavily involved in one of the storylines that we got previously um, when he was expected of murdering uh, Simon Stagg. Um, and Bumblebee has shown up in, in the pages before as well. But for the most part, these stories, again, they really don't have much to do with one another. Yes, Simon Stagg in um, the Metamorpho story and Bumblebee is going up against uh, a company that's being dishonest about their business practices and what have you, that's a subsidiary of Stag. And then you've got the imps and then you've got the challenges of the unknown, which, you know, you could look at those as being two sides of a, the same coin uh, with this really powerful villain, this villain is so powerful that fifth dimensional imps are scared of him. And obviously the, the universe, the fabric of reality being ripped apart um, you know, in the in the pages of that uh, challenge of the unknown story. So yeah, what if what if all of this is what if all four of these seemingly disparate stories are all related, and yeah. that villain in the fifth dimensional imp story is the one? Like, if anybody can like snap their fingers and restart a DC universe or create, you know, a, an ultimate DC universe that is, for lack of a better word, different. You know, than than any other, and not connected, and not part of the yeah. DC multiverse, but just out on its own, and and have it restart, and you get the origin of Superman, you get the origin of Batman. It would be a fifth dimensional imp, right, or a villain that's so powerful that even fifth dimensional imps are are scared of him. So yeah. that is interesting. I did not I did not think of that until you said Mark. I trust Mark Wade. He's got a plan, and yeah, it just the dominoes started to fall. Um, 
Yeah. So yeah, I might have to I might have to pick up a copy of this because it might turn out to be a very important issue. That's or right. we could be we could be completely wrong and it it doesn't matter at all. It's it's funny. Uh, I didn't even make the connection with the other stories, but you're absolutely 100% right. It could very well be they could all be related. So now you've got me we sort of built on each other's uh, rants or raves here because now maybe I have to pick this up. I think it's on my pull list anyway because I have everything world's finest with my retailer. So, but, uh, but that's all right. It's all good. I mean, I got every issue of world's finest now. I might as well get the annual. I'm a little bit yeah. of a completionist that way. So, yeah, and the covers are fantastic, and the art for the most part is is really good. So, uh, all right, everybody, pick it up at your uh, at your. You know, if you think we're right, pick it up. If you think we're wrong, then I guess you could probably skip it. So. Uh, okay, up next we have the final issue of the event that's going on now, uh, Teen, uh, or just Titans rather, Titans Beast World Finale, written by Tom Taylor, Ivan Reis, Lucas Meyer, Eduardo Panseca on pencils. We've got Danny, Mickey, Lucas Meyer, and Julio Ferreira on inks, Brad Anderson and Romulo Fajardo Jr. on the colors, and Wes Abbott on the letters. I am still not sure how I feel about the way this event wrapped up. What did you think, Rocky? You know, I, I thought it was okay. I mean, look, uh, I think uh, I think a, a very common criticism, or at least a common commentary, by more than one reviewer, uh, particularly at the revelation of what happened at the end of last issue, that Raven's soul self is actually Doctor Hate, and that sort of it's the Dark Raven. It's the Raven, and the Dark Raven is actually the actual identity of of Doctor of Doctor Hate. That it 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 does feel very much like it's. What Tom Taylor hasn't been able to do uh, is make the Titans feel like they're elevated beyond the Justice League. It, it feels like a Titan story, and which I guess I can understand. Uh, and to his credit, I, I think in this issue, I do think that uh, I like what he did with Nightwing. I like what he, I like that that Nightwing approaches the president of the United States, gets the president back on his side. The same president who has kissed the the, the ring uh, on the finger of the sovereign. The same president that was manipulated by Amanda Waller. He talked to the president, and he got the president on the side to, uh, on the side to allow the Titans to utilize the military resources to help to help uh, initially uh, take down and defeat and and to start initially to destroy all the spores. And as Raven is talking to her darker self the dark raven former doctor hate it's clear that as these spores are dying the the garl gar himself is losing his mind i mean and so they realize that they have to collect the spores and because the more spores they kill the, the more they are slowly killing the any possibility of bringing the true consciousness and the mentality of beast boy back to uh, resurrection back to life and and i like how even donna troy is empowered with uh, chromium and kryptonian alloy uh, because of cyborg so he's capable of defeating both tamaranians as well as kryptonians as they become infected by the spores and becoming more and more powerful i like how all, all the other world, all the other uh, superheroes, including all the former members of the Justice League, I like how they listen to Nightwing. They respect the Titans. The Titans really have stepped up to the plate here. So I know I've talked about how I wish Titans, I wish this wasn't necessarily such a Titan-centric story with Raven and her soul self being the bad guy. On the other hand, I want to give some props to Tom Taylor because he Tom Taylor very clearly said look they're not the Justice League and the and the villains that the Titans have have also become elevated 
And these villains, the Titans villains are just as deadly as Justice League villains. So Tom Taylor said, you know what? No, I'm going to elevate the villains of the of the Titans because they're they're A-list villains, just like Titans are A-list heroes. And so rather than have them go up against Justice League, traditional Justice League villains, he said, no, I'm going to elevate some of the villains of the Titans. That's what he did. Now, whether or not it's worked for everybody, including myself, because I did, I have bitched about it in previous issues. OK, but I. I in this issue, I began to appreciate it more, and I saw that there was, I, I could see the threat level here, because there's no question that at the end here, Amanda Waller's still a threat. Uh, the Titans ultimately, at the end of the day, win. They managed to uh, regain the conscious, they, they managed to bring, resurrect Beast Boy. Uh, by, you know, there's a large part of his limb that was ripped off by the Necrostar in the first issue that was banished to another, the, I think the boomerang dimension and they, they brought it back. And, and so they, they won the day, uh, the, the world, the threat of the Garo Spores has been dealt with. The Garo Spores has been brought up. They've all combined back together uh, along with the arm that, uh, of, of, of the giant Garo that was lost in the boomerang dimension. And so Beast Boy's consciousness has been brought back intact. And Raven, of course, at the end, in, I, I thought it was brilliantly done. Uh, just when you think the story is over, Ra Raven has defeated her darker soul self by imprisoning, imprisoning the former Dr. Hate into the, the red gem she has, the soul gem. And uh, but then at the end, you discover that, oh, my God, it's it's uh, this this the dark Raven self is the one that's actually in control. And as we're leading into the big summer, you know, eventually we're going to be going into the big summer event. How is a darker, how is this dark Raven going to be able to further manipulate the Titans leading into to DC's big summer event and all those stories we just read in world's finest, right? <laughs> so it's, I, I, I'm intrigued by it. And the more I, I thought about it, the more I reflected on it, I'm going to give this story more of a chance because there is still a part of me, I have to admit, that feels a little bit underwhelmed because it was ah, it's just Raven and the soul self again. Raven and the dark. We've seen this story a thousand times. On the other hand, this is potentially different. And maybe it's not. Maybe Tom, maybe Tom Taylor is just going to wrap this up quick like he did the death of Wally West in the first issue of Titans. All of a sudden, that plot line just sort of like withered away and it wasn't a big deal. Maybe this will happen here too. But overall, I still enjoyed this. I still enjoyed this series for what it was. Just for the for if I look at this as just six issues and I avoid all the, the, the Star City and all the city collateral issues, which I didn't like. This was still a well done, beautifully illustrated uh, series. And I'm curious as to know where the Titans are going to be heading with this and what, what the consequences are going to be now that the Titans uh, have this darker, darker hate in their midst. And we should, we should remember that Dr. this Dr. Hate, this dark raven, is still working with Amanda Waller. And so Amanda Waller is still still has plans to destroy all the heroes on the planet. And if the upper echelon heroes are the Titans, one can see how the Justice League might have to step up to the plate and help out the Titans and bring the Justice League back in all their glory, while at the same time, this fifth dimensional villain that we just read about in, in World's Finest is on the plate. So, I mean, you can kind of see the different pieces coming into play potentially. So as much as I can maybe criticize on this in the smaller aspects of it, it the bigger picture is made maybe a little bit more exciting at least that's what i tell myself because i want to be an optimist so what do you think <laughs> yeah again I, I have mixed feelings um i, I you know i agree with you we, we've we've talked a lot about 
the fact that when it comes to Raven stories, it seems like we always get the same, the same old Raven story, right? Like it's her, it's Trigon, blah, blah, blah. Here we go again. Um, you know, at least this time it's not directly Trigon. It, it's her, it's her demonic self. You know, we know uh, influenced by Trigon, obviously being Trigon's daughter. But one of the things that is interesting about that though, is uh, if you want to talk about you know, classic Raven stories and her, the other Titans being worried that she was becoming violent or she succumbing and, and doing things that she shouldn't in terms of being a little too violent or, or, you know, being a little too rough with various villains, uh, or, you know, or, or criminals at times. And it was, it was the influence of her darker self, right. That would cause that to happen. So now you wonder, does it, does it flip? Right. So yeah, interesting dynamic Tom Taylor has set up, clearly planting seeds for uh, future Titan stories. The fact that the Titans don't know that, you know, they think it's Raven, but really it's Raven's demonic half. Uh, but how much will Raven, the, the, you know, in that soul stone be able to influence her, her darker self? Will she be able to perhaps uh, influence the darker self enough that the, the Titans will realize something's going on? So, so that's pretty interesting. I also really appreciated uh, how how Tom Taylor got Gar back together, right? Like it, it made total sense. Like, oh, Gar's going to end up being um, like mentally deficient, for lack of a better term, because yeah, you're destroying pe- you know parts of him as you're destroying all these spores, and, and yeah, kind of a dramatic moment when they realize, hey, wait, stop destroying the spores. We got to capture him. Because every time we're doing that, we're killing a little bit of Gar. We all know how much of a family the Titans are. So it kind of raised the stakes. But I do, again, not to play script doctor too much, but I do kind of think that would have been better had it been realized sooner, like maybe toward the end of last issue and given a little more time to, to build up that drama and, and maybe could have had the angst that the Titans are feeling uh, a little more clear. But again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking. I, I think overall... I like the fact, hey, remember the Necrostar tore off a part, a part of his arm. You know, if we have a whole arm of him, um, that'll clearly allow us to uh, maybe restore enough of his uh, his memories. And so all that all that really worked for me. That That's what worked. What didn't work is the same old tired story, you know, with Amanda Waller. And, she, you know, I've said it a hundred times at this point. She's an out-and-out villain now. Uh, enough with pretending she's a hero. She's got the gall to stand in front of the Hall of Justice. Like, I, well, it's I the guess hall of order. it's the Hall of Order now. The Hall of Order now, right, right. But it, it's the Hall. It's it's fucking Hall of Justice, man. I remember it from the damn DC uh, Super Friends cartoon. That's one could argue is the whole reason I'm a comic book fan because I remember watching that when I was like three years old uh, before I learned to read, and that was the reason why when I turned four and started to learn to read, I wanted to read. Super Friends comics. Yeah, and by the way, I just I just want to say something. In Bendis's run, Oliver Queen was the guy he he owned. He bought the Hall of Justice. He built it. It was yeah. Oliver Queen that funded it because Bruce Wayne was broke or lost most of his billions. So I can't believe that Oliver Queen, who's looking for Amanda Waller, looking for Roy, you're gonna have me believe that that Roy that Oliver Queen sold the Hall of Justice because I'm yeah. pretty sure Oliver Queen owned it. That doesn't make sense to me. It does, yeah, none, none of it makes sense. None of it, none of it makes sense. Um, so yeah, I, but you know, let me play devil's advocate here and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe kudos to DC for uh, 
taking Amanda Waller down this path, right? Like I, I despise her. Anybody who listens to this podcast knows how much I, I despise her. I want her to like, like there's no, there's no fate. There's no horrible fate that Amanda Waller could meet at this point that would be too cruel or, or, you know, would, would, would truly make me feel like she got what she deserved. Like she's so far above and beyond, like she deserves like the worst fate imaginable at this point. But I guess kudos to DC for creating a, a character that I have that strong of emotion about, right? Like it's worse if you're a publisher or if you're a creator of some kind, it's worse if people don't care at all, right? They don't like them. They don't list like them. Like they're completely apathetic. That That's worse, right? Because now it's like, well, you didn't give me anything to, you can give me anything to care about. So why should I, why should I care? So um, I guess we'll see how it all pans out for Waller in the end. Um, no idea what, you know, what might happen to her or what have you. Um, I guess that's all, it's all to be determined. What's going to happen to uh, Amanda Waller? Will she get her come up and, as it were? Will she not? No, uh, no idea. Absolutely no idea. So again, we'll just have to, we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. So ultimately I think the event was a success partly because of the artwork by Yvonne Reese, which was just fantastic. And the, the setup that it has going forward. And I think we talked about that before, how we feel felt like one of the failures of night terrors. Like there's no, there's nothing to, that that's continuing on from it. You know, nobody's going to want to use insomnia. Nobody really cares. Uh, it's just done and forgotten. Um, as opposed to this, I think there's, uh, yeah, there's consequences on this one. Yeah. Yeah. There's consequences. There's things to be explored and what have you. So, uh, okay. Last book we're going to talk about in detail. Uh, there's a ton of stories. It's the DC power 2024 issue. I mentioned it at the top celebrating black history month. We've got enduring farewells, which is uh, Joe uh, Mullen story. Sojourner, uh, enduring farewells, NK Jemison writer, Jamal Campbell artist, um, that was the basically the team that that gave us the the far sector series uh, to begin with. Then we've got Spice of Life by Cheryl Lynn Eaton, uh, Asaya Fulmore is the artist, Ruth Redman on colors, Pit Stop by Lamar Giles as the writer, Sean Damian Hill on pencils, Anthony Fowler Jr. on inks, DJ Chavez on colors, Pure Blackness by uh, writer John Ridley, Edwin Galmon is the artist, Lost at Sea, Darren Bennett. Is the writer Dennis Cowan pencils Joe Stanisi on inks Christopher Sotomayor on colors, the session uh, by um, Sean Martinborough as writer Tony Atkins and Moritat as the artist then Natural Order by Aletha Martinez writer and penciler Mark Morales is the inker Ramulo Fajardo Jr on colors. Interesting, I had no idea that Aletha Martinez was also an artist. You know, we only know as a, her as a writer. So that was interesting. Uh, Jumps, Shots, and Loose Watts by Jarrett Williams, the writer. Uh, Domo Stanton is the artist. Andrew Dollhouse on colors. Fair Play by Greg Burnham as the writer. Uh, Genoa Lindsay is the artist. And then The Light That Shines with uh, Brandon Thomas as writer and Kari Randolph and Serge Acuna as artists. So overall, I was, again, a little bit underwhelmed by this. Um, it was nice to revisit... Um, the uh, the far sector and the city enduring, um, you know, fantastic art by uh, Jamal Campbell. Great to have Joe Mullen written by N.K. Jemison, who I think is the best. Writer. I mean, she's kind of the first, so maybe that's why 
but I just I like the way the tone that she gives uh, Joe, the you know vocabulary, like the voice that she gives her. I, I think it it feels the most like Joe to me. And again, maybe that's just because uh, you know she was the first one to, to write her. So I thought that I thought that story was fun. It was it was nice to go back. Um, the second one, the Spice of Life. Uh, it tells a story about thunder and lightning. J- uh, Jefferson Pierce's daughters. Again, it was okay. Um, nothing that was like really stand out about it. Um, probably the best aspect of it was the line work and the color work, which were pretty strong. And it did have Condiment King as the villain, so you know I'm going to give it points for that because Condiment King is <laughs> hilarious. Uh, Pit Stop is a Bloodwind story. I don't know enough about Bloodwind to really understand what's going on here. So that one had me feeling a little bit lost, um, but maybe that's on me. Um, the John Ridley story, which is a Val Zod story, I found to be maybe the most interesting. I don't know if that's in a good way. Um, and Val Zod himself, it's very, very meta. Val Zod's talking about the way he sees himself. He sees himself so differently than, than Superman does. And, and the fact that Valzad calls himself Superman, but talks about not necessarily not wanting to help people, but he'd rather be alone. Like in this story, the reason it talks about blackness is he flies out to the center of the universe where nothing's alive, where he won't feel obligated or have any responsibilities to, to like help save anybody or what have you. That's so in a way antithetical to who Superman is. I, like I've never known Valzad to be written this way. Um, so I thought it was really interesting. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Uh, but the art by Edwin Galmon was really fantastic. Um, and you know, if somebody else writes a Valzad story in it, it, they could explore this. There's a lot of uh, potential here. Uh, the Lost at Sea story was a Black Manta story. Um, I, I that was probably one of my least favorites. It was just a Black Manta story again. Not not really memorable. Um, Dennis Cowan art though. So that was really fantastic. Uh, then we have, uh, the, a Crispin Glover version of the Spectre story with, uh, Renee Montoya. Again, nothing really memorable about that one. thought it was okay. Um, I do like, um, Crispin, uh, as the, um, as a Spectre. I do, I do enjoy that. And then we had a natural order, which is a Nubia story, which, uh, again, kudos to Aletha Martinez because, um, really fantastic art. And again, I had no idea she was even an artist. Uh, but one Mixia's Pitalik appearance a, month, a week is enough and having him show up twice. Again, that's not Aletha Martinez, but I was like, oh, man, really more Mixia's Pitalik. Uh, yeah, once once is more than enough with that character. So, so anyway, that one was only okay. Uh, and then the, uh, the Jarrett Williams uh, jump shots and loose watts, which has uh wallace west i like this a lot better than what he's doing in speed force but again it it wasn't really memorable it was just okay although i thought the art was uh was really strong and then the uh the mr terrific story though that comes up next (coughs) i did really enjoy that i think mr terrific is an underused character i think in in the hands of the right writer um he could be really really interesting so uh uh, Greg Burnham did a fantastic job writing that one. And then the last one uh, with the signal, I I, I got to admit, man, I'm not a fan of Duke Thomas. He feels so redundant to me, you know, like how many different sidekicks does Batman need? Um, so that one was just kind of meh to me as well. So 
overall, uh, I didn't feel like this DC power issue this year was as strong as, uh, as last year. So I don't know. What, what did you think Rocky uh, thoughts on any or all of these stories? Uh, yeah, I, I actually like the, the end. Uh, I like that they have character bios at the end for Val, for uh, Val Zod's uh, Christmas Allen as Black Spectre, Black Manta, Mister Terrific, and and the Signal, and uh, because I think that's needed uh, uh, because a lot of these characters they they're not getting let's face it they're not getting a lot of attention by DC and I think in a certain by a certain way of looking at it, this is a little bit of a disservice to them by cramming them all into an anthology like this that probably is not going to sell as well as it probably should. Um, I also note that this is Black History Month and promoting this as Black History Month and then suggesting it's LGBTQ because it, it almost seems to have rainbow colors, Black History Month. I think that uh, I think that. Uh, that's all well and good There's, and, and all the power to him for that. But you don't need to. These characters are, I mean, uh, uh, these characters are pretty cool in their own right. I don't I don't think they need the promotion of black history or uh, pride, quite frankly. And I say that well, as I a don't comment. Think that's, I, don't I, don't think I don't think that's, that's the pride. I think I don't think that's the pride rainbow. I think that's uh, an African flag. Oh, yeah. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Whatever it is. I, but, you know, regardless, I, I do like these characters. I actually like the Black Manta story. Uh, and I always thought Christmas Allen made for a cool Spectre, cool looking Spectre. But to my knowledge and continuity, Christmas Allen is not the Spectre anymore. He's not. Yeah. I, I don't know why that story was told. Uh, but but again, it's fine. It's fine because it's a it's it, you could say it's a story told in the past. But, you know, these characters would benefit more. If if they if if as a reader I feel that they're part of the DC universe I, I felt that way with Lost at Sea with the Black Manta story which I actually enjoyed the Nubia and Mixias Patelic story I thought was by Lisa Mart- Martinez I thought that was uh, I thought that was very off the wall and very creative the idea that a fifth dimensional imp interacting with Greek Greek gods Greek mythology I thought that had a lot of pot- potential I thought it was thought it was interesting um, I just but again, there's no connective tissue to the mainstream universe, universe. Not that there has to be. This is sort of an annuals week. It is an annuals week. And so, you know, some of these stories, I, I didn't mind. Like I said, I like the Black Manta. I like the Nubian Mixias Patelic. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, Crispus Allen, it was kind of cool to see him again uh, interacting with uh, Rene Montoya. The Speed Force, Wallace West, that story, I, Speed Force, I think, has been a very, hasn't, I'm not, I've not been a fan of the series and I'm not really a fan of this uh, uh, that particular story, my, uh, in particular, but uh, overall, it's not bad. You mentioned uh, you mentioned Val Zod. Uh, it's interesting the the approach that John Ridley takes toward Val Zod. I, I wish we got more Val Zod stories. I loved Earth Two. I remember it's one of the Earth Two was one of the series, and it was Earth Two, and then it became Earth Two Society out of the New Fifty Two. I wasn't a fan of the New Fifty Two in general, but Earth Two was one of the series that I actually quite enjoyed. And Val Zod was a character that was a very he was always a very reluctant Superman. And uh, when he finally stepped up to the plate, he was very it was a very good Superman, but a reluctant one and this is sort of in keeping this is 
in keeping with that characterization, but going down even a darker, almost a dystopian, like a depressing kind of view of him seeking some uh, a higher degree of solitude that, you know, it's one thing to have a fortress of solitude. It's one thing to fly into the deepest recesses of space to try to embrace it totally. So I I would love to see more of an exploration, a, a character exploration of Val Zod. Give Val Zod his own series. Uh, James Gunn just recently confirmed uh, that apparently there is still a Val Zod movie or a black Superman movie in development. So who knows? But uh, I would love to see uh, Earth 2, an Earth 2 uh, comic book series but given given that we don't know what the hell's going to dc is what we're moving toward after with dc free comic book day coming up no one knows what the free comic book day is going to be for dc this year what's going to be the big dc event we don't know but hopefully this dc power and these uh these uh these african-american characters will have some degree of prominence in the storyline and, and and you know give give you know maybe hand out some miniseries and explore them because I, I think DC, I, I love when DC takes a chance on some of these characters and give them a good creative team and uh, let's have some fun. Yeah. It, and it is sort of a limitation. <laughs> I keep going back, thinking back to what we were talking about. We want anthology, we want anthologies. Now we have them and we're like, Oh man, anthologies, anthologies. Here's the thing. It's, it's so, it's so tough because you get eight to 10 pages and it's just not enough. Right? Like, for the, for the stories that you might not be that interested in, it's it's more than enough, right? Like eight pages is enough to be kind of bored or um, just not really interested. And then for the, the stories that you want to know more about, like Valzad, you feel like, oh, man, you're just barely scratching the surface. So, yeah, sort of damned if you do and <laughs> damned if you don't, I guess. Uh, anyway, that does it for the uh, single issues that we're going to talk about this week uh, when it comes to collections. We've got uh, a trade paperback, volume six of Batman Urban Legends. This collects uh, 208 pages. Actually, doesn't say what it what it collects, uh, what issues it collects, but it's the final volume, so it must collect you know the last few, probably two. I'm guessing two issues of Batman Urban Legends, um, and then the other uh, book that's out this week is Waller versus Wildstorm, hardcover, um, which was. Yeah, it was kind of weird. It came out late, lost some momentum. Um, we had some trouble. It's not the worst thing I've ever read. Tried to give a little bit of, like, sort of a true political feel to the the DC universe, along with uh, Amanda Waller and some Wildstorm characters. So um, that collects the whole series, all three uh, of the Black Label issues. So uh, that does it for collections. Uh, all right, I guess it's time for Book of the Week. Rocky, what, what's your pick? Well. Uh, I'm going to say that, um, the ones that are in my top three, and then I'll pick one as a, that my top three would be Batman off world, uh, Alan Scott, Green Lantern. And, um, I enjoyed, uh, Batman and Robin. Those are my top three. Uh, but I'm going to have to give it to, I'm going to have to give it to Batman off world because I just had, I had an absolute blast with it. And Jason Aaron, you know, it's it's so great to see him hitting it, you know, doing such a good job with with the bizarro story with Superman and, and you know, coming to D.C. <laughs> and, 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 and 
having starting off with a great Batman story and follow that up with a good Superman story. I mean, you, you couldn't ask for more. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, uh, when you compare that and I couldn't help but think in this week how, how disastrous Bendis' premiere was when I compared to JC, Jason Aaron. Bendis was was criticized at Marvel. He comes to D.C. and all are worse you know, every all the Marvelites were saying, "Oh, you guys, you guys don't understand," and all our worst fears were realized. And Jason Aaron, he when he left Marvel, he sort of left it. Uh, he left it with some degree of criticism. Uh, I am told because I never really followed much of it, but uh, uh, I enjoyed his indie work, and I'm so happy that he's doing such a great job with Batman Offworld. Uh, this is really almost. It feels like a new Batman. It feels fresh, and it and it feels like it's an unexplored aspect of Batman's origins. It's Batman, you know getting familiar with space and aliens and it feels new even though likely it probably isn't but it feels new and that's that's frankly the best that you can hope for in these uh, modern day stories so what about yourself i'm so glad you picked batman off world I, I was over here in my head going pick batman pick batman pick batman uh and the reason for that is so my my top two would be batman off world and alan scott green lantern obviously i didn't enjoy the batman robin annual um so yeah, I was kind of hoping you'd pick back because I think I've I've chosen Batman Off World every uh, you know every time it's come out. I, I chose issue one as my book of the week. I chose issue two as my book of the week, and I was like, man, I I think I gotta keep my streak up and pick Batman Off World. It was so good, but I really want to pick Alan Scott Green Lantern. I think I may have chosen Alan Scott Green Lantern each week. It's been out. I don't think they've come out in the same week previously. But you helped me out. You picked Batman Off World, so that allows me to pick Alan Scott Green Lantern. Uh, but but honestly, you know, I I'll, I'll officially I'll pick Alan Scott Green Lantern. But really, it's a tie for me. Like these were both really fantastic, uh, and it's not just the stories and the fact that they feel fresh, uh, like we talked about in our reviews. But the art on both of these books is so good. Um, you know, I would and and not in the same way. Like the Batman off-world art is so dynamic and it shows the action and the Doug Monkey. I don't think there's anybody working, any modern comic artist I can think of that draws aliens and, you know, alien creatures and what have you. Like you see the um, metallic wolf on the cover. There's nobody, no modern comic artist that draws aliens as well as Doug Monkey. He's just fantastic. So the action, the kinetic feel, um, all the huge fight scenes. And, and even in those huge fight scenes with a bunch of different aliens and a bunch of different characters, it's never confusing. It never feels busy. Uh, it's It still feels very clean and, and very fresh, and it jumps off the page with the Dave and Bar- Baron colors. And you get that sort of cosmic feel, right? Like we talk about shows like uh, like Star Trek or Buck Rogers where the future is very bright and shiny and clean. That's what we're getting here. It's not necessarily the future, but it's out in space you know, with advanced technology. And it's, it feels very clean, at least until Batman starts punching and people are bleeding and things are breaking all over the place. But the, the line works very clean and the art's fantastic. When you talk about the artwork uh, for Green Lantern, you're talking about the art telling the story in a different way through emotion, emotionality, through body language that conveys that emotion, through um, the, the more subtle color work that's done. Uh, because as we talked about, when we talked about the review, this issue was all about the relationship between Red Lantern and Green Lantern, right? Between the Crimson Flame and the Flame of Life that Alan Scott uses. Um, and and 
these two men who are conflicted, right? They're now enemies. There's animosity, but there was love previously and they, they're fighting against those old feelings. And that's conveyed with the body language, with the choice of, uh, uh, you know, of, of distance in the panel, like close up on the face to show emotion, pulling back to show body language and, and position and the way they're relating to each other. Um, not to say there was an action because, you know, they fought as well and had really cool scenes. Neither one of us mentioned uh, Alan Scott uh, going through walls, which was a thing back in the day, uh, like one of his powers. And Tim Sheridan uh, brought that here and he talks about how it's actually time travel and, and that that's really interesting as well. So, uh, yeah, these are both great books, both deserving of your uh, attention and your comic dollar this week. So, uh, yeah, definitely pick those two up and – and yeah, based on our speculation, maybe pick up that world's finest annual. Maybe not. I, you know, I don't know. It's up to up to you all. Uh, anyway, anything else you have uh, coming up this week that you want to tease, Rocky? Well, you and I are probably we're going to review the first Ghost Machine uh, compilation. Probably that'll probably come out t- today or tomorrow. And uh, but beyond that, I I I don't think so. Actually, I'm going to be reviewing a book uh, uh, before the uh, probably on Saturday. Uh, it's, it's the inside that it's called inside the mind of Sherlock Holmes. It's very, it's very well done. It's a fantastic graphic novel. It's, it's, uh, I, f- I forget the name of the uh, artist and writer, but just does a phenomenal job and told, uh, and literally the art, it, 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 it tells it, it's an adventure, uh, told from the, it's it, Sherlock Holmes and the adventures of the, uh, involving a, the scrupulous ticket. And, uh, it shows how there's like a hundred clues that are, that, are contained in the comic and that's how Sherlock Holmes figures out the clues and puts the clues together and it's an immersive experience with the art and you got to follow the art the art is part of the story in a way that I've not seen done in a comic book in years and I think it's one of the best graphic novels I've read in in years it's it's just exceptionally done it was it's actually published originally in French and in France and it's uh it came out in December uh just before Christmas so I want to give it I want to give a shout out to that that'll be coming out probably early next week uh, fantastic. Well, I should have uh, an interview with um, Harley Quinn artist Chad Harden. That's what he's most well known for. Uh, coming out this week, he's got an art book coming out, so he's going to come on and talk about that. Obviously, the Spawn Daily continues. Uh, complete chronology of Spawn. If you're curious uh, about Spawn, I always have been. Uh, you can go check it out on the YouTube channel. Uh, and I think that's it for this week. But we'll we'll see. You never know. Uh, yeah, looking forward to that Ghost Machine conversation uh, as well, which is just fantastic. So don't forget, everybody, uh, if you're listening to us audio only, head over to YouTube. Uh, you can find the Spawn Daily on the Comic Source uh, YouTube channel. If you're looking for Rocky's content, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. It's where all the DC spotlights are every week. Um, if you always listen to the audio, man, check us out on YouTube when we do these uh, DC spotlights because you can see the art. You can see uh, our smiling faces. It's, it's really fantastic. You know what to do once you get there, no matter which channel it is. Subscribe, ring the notification bell, get involved in the comments. We love to uh, to chat with uh, viewers and what have you. So we really appreciate that. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on uh, YouTube and you're curious about the other audio-only content from the Comic Source, just go to wherever you get your podcasts, do a search for the Comic Source, and subscribe. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. We appreciate you joining us as always, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later.
You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.